G'day friends, my name is James Baldwin and welcome along to Oz F1, Australia's favourite Formula One podcast from wherever you're listening, all across the globe. It is great to have your company. Well, we are back with another episode of Campy Calls It. That's right, you've asked and we have listened. Thomas J. Camp, my friend and yours, is here with all of the news about the F1 Concord Agreement, the sale of Williams, and we'll touch on the Indy 500 too. So let's get into it. And of course, for this incredibly special episode of Oz F1, I am joined by my friend and yours, my co-host for the entire series. It is Thomas J. Camp. Campy, g'day, mate. Hey, mate. How are you? I'm not mate, sure. I am doing well. I'm not sure this is an entirely special episode, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> it's Campy calls it V2. Uh, <laughs> we listen to the fans, and sometimes when it's not asking for you to be president, mate, uh, I will oblige. And here we are. <laughs> then, well, Big shout out to Tommy T, who isn't with us. Uh, he has just messaged me, though, to say to disagree with everything that you say, Campy, but I won't be doing that. So, Tommy, you keep your cheek uh, and you can keep it in your little uh, gulag prison wherever you are locked away in the state down there. I was going to say, you've Campy. actually heard from him. I thought he was in a re-education camp <laughs> <laughs> in the gulag, which is the door at the moment. What? You went 5.1 kilometres away from your home? How dare you? Oh, yeah, no. wow. Imagine if people just listened to the rules the first time around and everything would have been fine. Anyway, it's not that kind. That's our other... If you want to listen to our other politics podcast, feel free. Uh, Campy, a couple of things have happened uh, since we spoke about the uh, Spanish Grand Prix, which is incredibly boring. I think you and I have maybe just started to wake up a bit from that. Uh, but most importantly, I guess, uh, we're looking at the future of the sport has been locked in and all 10 teams who are currently on the grid will be here at least for a little while longer unless they go back. But the Concord Agreement has been signed uh, ahead of time as well. I think it was going to expire at the end of this month in terms of the signatures needed. Uh, So some bonus money might have gone out to a couple of the teams, but you're going to take us through what it means for the sport and the significant changes that we can expect going forward. You're right. They dangled a little carrot in front of every team saying, if you sign this before August 12th and then that could push back to August 18, we will give you some money. So... Well, free money, you can't – it's inevitable. They're going to have to sign it anyway. It's not like they go back and, oh. you know, be a democratic organisation and all agree together. So, because I think – No. Uh, think and even, even uh, Karen Horner, and I love that from last week from Tommy, <laughs> Karen Horner came out and said, guys, you can't – you're not going to get everything that you want, so you might as well just sign up so we can carry on. But you would say that if you're, you know, the, the up in the top three in the grid, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think so. I think Mercedes is the team that probably loses out the most. Yeah. Um, more than anyone else, just because they're on top. And these rules are, uh, what's the right, how do I nuance around this without saying they're corrupt? <laughs> <laughs> how do I, they're, dis, they're disadvantageous to, to Mercedes yeah. at the end of the day because they lose a lot of the influence that they may have had being the best team and now... If they're too far in front, teams can make decisions on a whole to peg them back without them being able to do much about it. So anyway, we'll get into we, it. Yeah, let's get into it, mate. So take us through what it looks like. Well, it's the Concord Agreement is basically what any team has to sign in order to operate within F1, and it, and it, it really talks about the distribution of funds from the FIA hmm. to the teams. 
and also governance as well. So you can imagine with under Bernie Eccleston's reign, there was a bit of corruption going on behind the closed doors where it was if you I think were a Bernie, bitch is an understatement. <laughs> well, well, if you were friends with Bernie and really good friends with him, you would get better deals than a lot of the other teams. So I think it's good that we've mm. moved away from that. Um, it yeah, seems on right. paper a bit more. Um, so beforehand, there was if you wanted to change a rule in F1 or change regulations, there was about 120 different people throughout the various bodies that oh. could actually vote on whether you could change it or not. So you can just imagine it was a bit of a nightmare. But now it's been simplified. Yeah. We've got we've got three groups of individuals. Um, the FIA has 10 representatives. The F1, as in Liberty Media, has 10 representatives, and each team has a representative well as well. So there's 30 votes total on any decision that is made, and they only need 25 of those 30 votes to ratify any decision that's been put forward. So I, I think it's good because it simplifies any decision-making yep. in the sport because historically it's yep. been pretty political and bad. The yeah. problem is, is F1 and FIA are always going to vote together regardless. So there's 20 of your votes anyway, and mm. you only need five teams to ratify it. So in the hypothetical world where Mercedes next year is so far in front of everybody else, uh, mid-season they put some changes in around DAS, just say. Oh, you yeah. shouldn't be able to use DAS. Not that it gives that much performance, but no. the FIA yeah. and F1 – they will they'll get 20 votes and then it's just five minnow teams that are behind Mercedes that can say yeah we agree with that and then Mercedes doesn't have any say either way so mm. look it's good because it's been simplified but at the same time it just leaves the door open for you're better than us therefore we're going to try and bring you back on performance a bit which I don't like it's that tall poppy syndrome isn't it it is and we've already seen that we'll get to it soon but we've already seen it this year with you can't use engine modes and qualifying. Yeah, we're we're, we're, six, we're six races into a year, and we're they're already trying to peg back Mercedes because they're so far in front. It's like, well, I kind of get it from a spectator and a and a like viewing wise makes it a bit more yep. exciting. Yeah, but these other teams should do their work. Get well, that's exactly right. Peg You're them being, back. It's performance punishment, and the fact that. You, the the paddock is now turning around saying, hang on a second, you are so much better than us and have been for so much longer now we're going to pull you backwards. Isn't fair to the thousand people who are, who are working their asses off to make that car incredible and the leadership of Toto. And no wonder he's been coming out in the last couple of weeks and you know saying like teams are up the ass of Liberty Media because yeah, it's true. Totally. I think, I think that's really, really poor form. I can see both sides of it, but I'm always going to side with Mercedes and Toto because they put the hard work yeah. in. Now, and if Ferrari's oper- at the front, couldn't agree with you more. Pull them all the, the way back. Take them all the pegs, which wouldn't matter because they'd veto it anyway, but you know yeah, what I mean. We'll, we'll get to that. But Mercedes, op- like their operational function has been let's crush these teams, crush them, and that's mm. exactly what they've done as an organisation. So, look, I think there's some good things, but there's some bad things to it too. As for the money distribution, <laughs> yes, in <Go> banks, <laughs> much like the rest of the world, we were trying to, you know, redistribute a whole lot of funds in the economy. <laughs> Formula One has taken that tact socially. I think. I think their social scientists have said, "Oh yeah, this is what we can sell it as." They've sold it as a take from the rich and give to the poor. 
which on paper it actually looks like that. You get teams like Ferrari and your Red Bulls and your Mercedes, which take massive amounts of the prize pool on offer at the moment mm. and spend it all for themselves. The problem is, is next year we have a budget cap of $145 million. And this mm. agreement has been really careful to not put figures out there. The only figures they've actually given us are the sliding scale for first to last in the constructors. So it starts at 14.6% of the prize pool, goes to the winning constructor, down to 6% for the team that comes last. So now the issue we have with this is that you also get a base payment, which is just a one-off payment just for being in the championship every year. So, yep. And that's even amongst all the teams. Yep. And then the second category of that is the the finishing position in the constructors. So, And there's some other things. There's a third tier as well. The teams are broken up into three different groups. You have your independent teams, which are Williams and McLaren. They're yep. one-third of the triangle. The other third is the uh, customer teams like your Renault. Ah, uh, sorry, uh, your uh, Alpha Tauri. Alfa Romeo, Alpha Tauri, Haas, and Racing Point. That's correct. And then you have your constructors being Red Bull and Honda, uh, Mercedes, mm-hmm. Ferrari, and Renault. Mm-hmm. So the remainder of those funds, uh, there's a third category where distribution goes to constructors. Uh, customer teams and independent teams. There is also a fourth, which teams like Ferrari and Williams get a get a. We've been in F one for way to way longer than everyone else, so we'll get payments yep. on top of that. And on top of that, in all voting scenarios, Ferrari maintains their veto. Yeah. Which just, <laughs> it just it boggles the mind, doesn't it? That that's still a thing. Yeah. So. If Ferrari, hypothetically, if Ferrari is so far in front next year, which they won't be, and they tried to knock back their performance level on the voting system they had, they're the only team in F1 that can go, no, we're vetoing this, we don't like it. So it turns out that Ferrari, they are performing terribly on track at the moment, off track. They're still in a pretty good position and they haven't lost or changed anything since. Which it's kind of yeah. I mean, the the argument isn't is that it's sort of like you know Formula One wouldn't be Formula One without Ferrari, right? But gotta say, I don't think I'd care one way or the other if they were on the grid or not. Well, look, we go on Ferrari all the time on this podcast, all the time. We don't like them, but you know what? It would be more advantage to more advantageous for us to talk Ferrari up and get Ferrari fans on side because, you know what, rumouredly there's half a billion people around the world that love Ferrari more than we do, and if we got on that bandwagon and talked them up a bit, we'd probably have a few more listeners and probably those comments that we don't talk about. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally, mate. But, you know, I think that's – but that's the way that we are anyway. And the Tifosi are the Tifosi. They're diehard fans. And, look, you know, all power to you. When when it's going right, it's going right. I I was incredibly happy to see Kimi Raikkonen win that race uh, a couple of years ago when it was his first time in a very long time. And I was was feeling it because it was passionate. uh, It was well-deserved and everything went well. But for all the reasons we've spoken about all the last uh, couple of podcasts in terms of what Ferrari are doing, I've got no love for them. And I think even a lot of 
historic Ferrari fran- fans rather are seeing that as well and sort of seeing a little glimpse into maybe the, the lack of leadership that currently exists. Sure, if it turns around and, it, and everything looks roses, then that's great. But uh, here at Oz F1, Campy, we don't want to tow the party line, do we? We want to create our own party line. Well... Oh, we've got back. We've got backbones, and we've got spines, so we'll stand on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and but, a McLaren is a better company car than a Ferrari, as you rightly said last week. Anyway, that is a fact. Okay, absolutely. There. Now, the biggest problem I can see with this Concord agreement: when they sell it, we're going to take from the rich and give to the poor. Because of the budget cap that we have next year, and what they're very careful not to put money out there and how much the prize pool is. But if we base it mm. on – I watched some videos and read some articles about if we base it on how much money Ferrari had received over the last decade, and no, I can't find any solid statistics on anything, it looks like that the F1 are going to be paying about 60 to 65% of Ferrari's total racing budget next year. Unbelievable. So, yes, they sell it as, oh, yeah, we're giving the other teams more of a cut. But at the same time, because of the changing rules and the budget cap next year, they're going, oh, right, we've got 65% of our budget paid for next year already. So we only have to find X amount out of our sponsors and our business side of the sport. Whereas you get teams like your Alfa Romeos, who are really struggling, um, Mm. take – they don't operate within that maximum amount anyway already. Yes, they're getting a bit more, but they still got to come up with the money that they're coming up with now to not even make the top end of that salary cap anyway. So it's, yeah, yeah. they sell it as, yes, there's change coming and, yes, it's great, we're div- diversifying and all that, but it's crap. Nothing really changes for the top teams except more of their operating budgets paid for. So that's where the issue with this agreement comes in. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration for teams like Mercedes have come Mm. into it. So um, Red Bull's on a winner because they get a double, they get, you know, they get a double dip because of Alfa Tori, their sister team. So it works for them. And Dietrich Massachusetts is a billionaire, so he only has to put in X amount anyway. So it's going to be less. (laughs) He'll be putting in less next year than he has in the past, you know, this year as well. So I'm trying to find some equality in this agreement, but I can't find it anywhere. (laughs) Do you know what frustrates me the most is looking at, looking at that and thinking about how Red Bull and AlphaTauri is set up in terms of that team. I know last week we spoke about uh, AlphaTauri not being the, the junior team to Red Bull anymore, but they are very much when it comes to the financials, is that teams like Ferrari and Alfa Romeo should be their junior team, almost hung out to dry because they're sauber, because it's that distant relationship. It's not really linked in. And yes, Shell sponsor Ferrari and they sponsor and now Alfa Romeo as of last year. And yes, you know, the uh, the sponsor money coming from Robert Kubica as a reserve driver has helped. But there, in my mind, there's not the same lift that Alfa Tauri get from Red Bull that Alfa Romeo should be getting from Ferrari. And when you're looking at that sort of 60 to 65% of their budget being provided by Formula One, you think that some of that money would slide across, but it's very unlikely to happen like that. And it just, that frustrates me, uh, the inequality really then in that space too. I'm not so much fussed about the inequality because that's probably a bad word to use um, because it's always been like this. And F1 at some level, I mean, we're not talking about people that are, 
you know, are oppressed here. We're talking about organisations that spend all their money going racing on cars. So I'm not fussed about that. That's just trickle-down economics, all that crap, 101. There's always going to be big fish and small fish, so I don't mind it. I think what it will do, though, is it will promote growth in the sport on track. That is the good thing about this agreement because it's going to be more viable for other constructors, other racing teams, you know, we've heard about some uh, F2 and F3 racing organisations making the jump to F1. So it will create growth, I think, long term because it's not going to be as expensive to get involved in it as it historically has been. And our biggest gripe about F1 is that there's not the 26 to 30 cars on the grid that we really want to see. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. That's a good point. So like anything, there's pros and cons. Uh, we're just trying to outlay them a bit, but they're selling me a quality, but it doesn't really look like it from where I'm sitting. So, so when does pa- this, when does the F1 Concord agreement then come into place? This new agreement, the new agreement. Well, it's next year. This year's yep. already taken care of, but it was supposed to be next year with the new regulations because of this COVID disaster. Everything's been pushed back slightly, so. But I'm not, again, I'm not too sure how this works for the rule changes about engine modes either, which is probably a good transition. Yeah. I don't know how they, I don't know how they pass that rule change about engine modes for qualifying at our next race in Spa. It's going to be, I mean, Mercedes might just run that party mode the entire time and that just becomes their (laughs) normal engine mode. Uh, But, I guess all jokes aside, we've seen that this car, DAS or not, and I think DAS is maybe, you know, we all spoke about it a lot at the beginning of the year because it was this weird thing watching this this steering wheel being pushed in and out. Not sure it is that uh, making that many gains as we thought that it would, as you well, said a little bit earlier there, Campy. DAS is about time management. It's not about performance. We thought it would have some aerodynamic uh, capabilities, but it really doesn't. They only use it in warm-up laps and when they're trying to manage a few tyres, so... But the Mercedes itself, though, if you take DAS out of it, although you don't need to, but if you take quali mode out, the party mode and the hammer time mode, if you will, Mercedes is still bloody quick. The car is still there and the drivers who are in the car are both incredibly quick and and bloody good. Obviously, Spar is, is a good track for them in terms of that power. But in terms of what that means, sure, that might mean that quali might be closer but really, if you think about the last couple of races that we've had, as soon as one of those Mercs gets out in front, it's goodbye. And that's the race we're talking about. They're not using that party mode there. So it'd be interesting to see how it affects, but I don't think it would be so negative for Mercedes. You've got to remember that if this was going to affect Mercedes like they think it will, they would have been jumping up and down last week at Spain. They would have been saying things in the media, publicly coming out against it, saying this is the dumbest thing ever. We've worked hard. Well, is me. That would have been their message from everybody that got on camera last weekend. But they didn't. They came out and Lewis came out and said, I don't think it'll change much. Every team's got a party mode anyway. So, Well, that's true. The, and then every the, team the, loses it. So it's just there. The only reason these power modes are in there is because the engine is capable of outputting a hell of a lot more than what it is on um, on their normal race day settings. 
the only reason they are allowed to use these quality modes for certain amounts of time is because um, they need reliability out of the engines. Now, if they were running these engines like they were 10 years ago in the V10 era or the V8 era, they would have been screaming quick anyway, but we would have seen more um, more mechanical breakdowns and durability. But because we can only use three three engines this year or four or whatever it is, um, that's why they only say, well, you can only use the party mode once because, we, you know, it just takes too much of a toll on the engine. So yeah. these engines are actually a hell of a lot more capable than what we see on race day, which we don't like. Now, the problem with having unlimited amount of engines is you just put a new in the big teams just put a new engine in every after every practice session, qualifying session and race. And that's not economical. That's not going to bring the cost of F1 down. So there's a happy medium. I don't think putting quality modes in or banning them is the solution. I think this is a knee-jerk reaction to the first mm. six races that we've had this year. If anything, it'll help Ferrari more than anything. Yeah, well, 2020 seems to be the year of knee-jerk reactions. Campy, talk to me about uh, reverse grid races because we've this has been spoken about in the last couple of weeks uh, and it looks like it was going to happen and then it didn't happen. Uh, would it be for the whole calendar that we're looking at or only certain tracks? No, it'll be track-specific. Now, I think this is inevitable for next year. Um I think it was too – they proposed this last year, but it never got voted on. Due to COVID, there's a whole lot of things pushed back. But, again, with this Concord Agreement being signed this week and coming into fruition next year, it's a hell of a lot easier for people to change change the rules and change the way that they do a race weekend now. So we've had this idea about reverse good races because we think it will induce more more racing. But also the the idea for next year is that certain tracks, like your crap ones, <laughs> like Russia. I think I said. Russia. I think I said. Yep. So, I think I said uh, Baku was a bad track a couple of podcasts ago. I got that wrong. That's a great track. But Russia, Paul Ricard, yep, <laughs> yep. Uh, Zandvoort, historically races that don't give us much anyway, and Spain. They're terrible, like for action on the track, really, because. Yeah, for whatever reason, they just don't perform the way – they just don't induce good racing. Uh, mm. Reverse grids could possibly work. Now, what they want to do is they want to have a, a – uh, instead of qualifying, they'll have a mini race on uh, Saturday, and the results of that race will dictate the starting grid on Sunday. Now, the starting grid of the sprint race on the Saturday will be determined in reverse order of the championship uh, – The the driver's championship at the time. So, again, this is a tack to try and pull Mercedes back. So every team is trying to jump on it and say, yes, it'll be good, whereas the only team that really affects this year is Mercedes. Mm. And they're just trying to peg them back, and it's more knee-jerk reactions. But because of the change in the decision-making for next year, that is why we will ultimately see, in my opinion, reverse grid races next year. And I don't like it because it... The other teams, as I said before, the other teams should work harder and get as good as the Mercedes. <laughs> but at the other end, these races are shit anyway and we shouldn't be doing them, so why not try something? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and if a reverse grid works, then that's fantastic. If it doesn't, at least we've tried something. And at the end of the day, and I think I said this to you a little bit earlier on, uh, F1 is an entertainment 
and a competition at the same time. They're, they're two very distinct things. And if we can have both at the same time, amazing. You know, great competition makes great entertainment. Uh, although the Williams and the Alfa Romeos are very used to seeing Mercedes and Red Bull fly up behind them and then pass them pretty quickly when they get lapped. So uh, that might not be too strange for them. The problem with the reverse, the, the problem with the reverse grids is that teams will automatically retire cars, you know, won't let them race, finish the race so that they get an advantageous position for the following Ooh. weekend. Yes, good point. You know, we've, we've seen Crashgate. We've seen Renault use Gianquillo, or whatever his name was, Yano Trulli, to crash out so that Fernando Alonso started on pole. We've, oh, sorry, get a uh, safety car mid-race. We've seen what sort of tactics team will use teams will use in the past. This is just another system to exploit that. Now, one thing I do know is that we don't need to change qualifying. Qualifying at the moment is the best qualifying I think we've ever had. We tried to change yep. it once. I think it was two years ago. It was the worst qualifying we'd ever seen. And for the next race, they went straight back to it. So, yep. again, I, I don't mind the idea of a reverse grid, but keep qualifying the same because we need it. You know, we need to keep it. But then again, it's advantageous for people like Bottas, who is not always going to beat Hamilton on pole. Mm. He'll be close, but he's just going, I'll just back off a couple of tenths so I'll get in front of Lewis. And we know for, you know, team on team passing, it doesn't happen very often as much as the like other cars passing other cars. The team on team passing, team orders is straight up. So it may induce good racing. But we're going to see some drivers, like you said, Vettels, he's not going to go as quick against Leclerc because he knows he's going to be in front of him anyway. So <laughs> yeah. the problem oh, with... That's the whole thing, isn't it? You know, the problem with... And I imagine Albon starting in front of Max every time. What mm. incentive What incentive does Max have to go and drive it as fast as he can? Where this year, if his car on, on race day is in front of the Mercedes, then... Chances are he will win that race. So what's the point in Mercedes even trying to go quicker because they know Max will get in front of them and they won't be able to pass him on race day. So that, to me, is where the issues lay. Mm. And you've got to pick circuits which allow a hell of a lot of passing, like your Sochi's that long str- – sorry, not your Sochi, your Baku. Uh, not ba- is it Baku? Yeah, Azerbaijan, Baku. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like that long straight induces a lot of passing. So it may work in a race like that, but a race like Sochi or Paul Ricard, I don't think we saw any passing at Paul Ricard last year. It was the most boring race ever. Just because fast cars start at the back doesn't mean that they will get out any further. There'll just be a Constantina effect on the whole grid the whole way along. So until the team Um, and it. And we've seen the like the DRS trains, but also when DRS is not on, there's actually really not that much difference between a lot of these cars. And if you've got a decent driver in a slower car, like you put your Kimi Raikkonen uh, in front of someone who's in a faster car, if it's not necessarily that much faster because of lack of, of DRS or whatever else, he just knows where to put it. So well, we saw yeah, that in Malaysia. That, we saw sorry, yep. we saw that last year in that uh, what's that night street race? Um, Singapore. Singapore. We saw that where you had Ferraris and Mercedes stuck behind Nico Hulkenberg in a Renault because DRS wasn't working. Yep. So you're right. You're totally right. So look, they got to try something because Liberty Media, since they bought it, they're now in entertainment sport. It's no longer about 
having the best manufacturers in the world at the height of technology, spending all their money so that we can develop cars and get them on the road. They're telling us this is an entertainment sport, so that's why these reverse grid races will be inevitable next year because they're going to have to try and change something. They're trying to even out the competition the best they can, but saying heads will prevail, I think, and they'll just go back to normal normalisation after 2022, I think, and next year. Mm. So... Anyway. It'll be interesting to see what happens when when it actually happens. Uh, but anything, like yeah. anything in Formula One, there's a lot of conversation, but we'll just see what happens. I'd like to talk about Williams, uh, and this is a pretty significant moment for, for Formula One. Uh, this is the last family-owned team. Uh, has finally sold to a private investment firm in the US. Uh, yeah. I have, I have to say, this is good news for both Williams and for Formula One. It is, mate. You say something. I've been talking way too bloody much, Jim. I'm sick <laughs> this of the sound of my own voice. Well, now you know how voice. Brian and everyone else feel. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, I'm glad I got that in there. Uh, this well, has look, been a shit show of a podcast. I've done way too much talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's already going to the bottom of the pile. Uh, well, look, there's a US for, uh, US private investment firm who've come along to to buy out Williams. Now, this is a complete buyout. This is something that they looked at at the beginning of the year and said, you know, there is a massive disparity between all of the the funding in Formula One. The Concord Agreement goes part of the way to. To, to sorting that out, absolutely. Uh, yeah. But we've just seen Williams fall to the bottom of the pile uh, in in recent recent years. But it is worth saying that they have won nine constructors championships, seven drivers titles, and 114 victories since they started with Sir Frank and Sir Patrick Head starting Williams Grand Prix Engineering. That's a an awesome feat. And if you think back to oh. who's driven for them and the championships they've had and the battles that they've had. It's bit, it's an epic team, and it's and Frank has done an amazing job in terms of of keeping it alive. Uh, and like Damon Hill is is probably my favourite. Thinking about all the championships that have happened in in the last thirty years. Oh, mate, you're not wrong. I think I think historically that Frank Williams story is incredible. It's a bit like our own Jack Brabham, really, except Brabham yes. didn't go on to continue his race team, whereas uh, Sir Frank did. So, uh, look, I think Williams is a great story. Unfortunately, we really haven't seen much from them since uh, 2007 or eight, when uh, mm. the year Mark Webber went there. They were winning races the year before, and that's when they fell off, and it's been a long, hard 12, 13 years since then. We we got some early um, in 2014 with the new regulations. They had that Mercedes engine, so they had some good results. But other than that, the organisation hasn't been in great shape on 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 the racetrack for thirteen or fourteen years. So let's hope this cash injection um, it'll get know, everyone excited, them. as excited as Pastor Maldonado was to win that race for him. I think that was their last <laughs> victory, wasn't it, back in twenty twelve? Um, yeah, twenty twelve was good. That year. was so funny. What a what a what a great dude. That that was just <laughs> epic in every single way. Uh, now. Obviously, Have Claire they, Williams has I've been. I've got a question. Did they yeah, sell the? Um, did they sell Williams Technology as part of the deal as well? Yeah, so it, it's not a. They have so as you quite rightly said to me earlier on, uh, the Williams Advanced Engineering business is is separate to Williams Grand Prix Engineering. Um, yeah. So they've 
they've sold their minority stake. So uh, Frank oh. and, and team had a minority stake in that company. So it's it's a total takeover of what Frank and Claire owned. Uh, it's probably right. the easiest way of saying that. So Frank, who had 52% of the shareholdings, um, has given all of that up. So there is literally no Williams family with any shares at all. Uh, all of them have gone to this company called uh, Doralton Capital. I probably yep. messed that up saying that, but uh, their portfolio includes a lot of companies uh, in the healthcare service area and specialty manufacturing sectors. So what this looks like, according to the reports that we're seeing, is that it's not necessarily a... Uh, aggressive takeover where they're going to come in and completely shake everything up and move everyone aside. So Claire Williams will remain in her position as deputy team principal for the time being. But Campy, you and I and Tommy have spoken about this over a long period of time in terms of the leadership there. I think the way that the team is now structured is fantastic. And I think that would have been really good for this capital investment firm to look at and say, yes, okay, you've restructured it and it looks good. And the Concord Agreement has now just been signed really around the same time as as this announcement came downrange. So it's good. Well, it probably helps because if we look across the board, the F1 as an organisation is going to be paying roughly 30 to 35% with all the base parts and the extras, roughly across the board, 30 35% of people's operating budgets for next year and on. And that's only going to go down from next year. It's 145 next year, and it goes down $5 million increments until it hits $120 million, I think, every year. So, you know, look, that would be part of the investment, I think, I would suggest, you know, that... Um, that you know, teams don't have to come up with much as much money as they previously did because F1's going to be paying a fair portion of their total operating budgets to go racing. Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, look. At the end of the day, it's it's good for the sport. I think as as you said uh, in the group message as well, and even Tommy was saying as well, it's good for the sport because Williams needs to exist. I think it's just one of those. It's to, it's, to me, it's almost more important than Ferrari, but it's like Ferrari or akin to Ferrari in terms of that heritage, the same as McLaren. Uh, but it, having that US investment again with Liberty Media as well, it just makes it sort of more in line with where the sport is going. And honestly, I really hope it works out for them. And it's a team that's really looking like a great option for drivers to go to rather than just an entry option. And it has to be said, Frank is... Uh, not poor as a result. He uh, probably would have netted around 58.24 million euros from the transaction. The uh, total apparently after all of the fees is around $112 million for the team. It was a bargain, really. It's like almost one year's worth of racing. Uh, So... It's good. I'm excited for the sport. I'm excited for the team. Uh, and it's good for people like George Russell, who's there at the moment. You know, next year yeah. is going to be stronger for him. Uh, and, I mean, he, he'll inevitably probably go to Mercedes. I think everyone's pretty certain of that. And, uh, indeed, the Beyond the Grid podcast that you mentioned uh, in a couple of weeks ago in terms of his attitude is totally in the right space too. So it's good for everyone. So what- uh, I, I don't think we'll see Claire in that seat for much longer though. Yeah, that's my question. So if this team owns everything, like if no Williams family member has any stake in it or they're going to be kept there, what's stopping this company from coming out and removing 
the Williams family completely from that organisation. Well, probably nothing, right? No, absolutely nothing. But I think a part of their statement or, or their press release was that they understand how important the Williams name is, so the name will stay and FW, the designation for each of the cars, will remain. So that's an important heritage part, and I think that'd be stupid to get rid of that anyway. Um, yeah. And they've said that because they, they're they using very good business buzz terms like going to work alongside or work with these people, uh, it means that they're not going to come in, force everyone out of the way. Now, as I said, that might be the short-term goal. Uh, ultimately, from the team principal, deputy team principal point of view, I think we'll probably end up seeing that change within the next 12 to 24 months, uh, probably before the, the new regulations come in. So maybe 18 months from now, uh, but nothing can be. Uh, so if you're thinking about starting your own private investment <laughs> equity firm, rather, so you can go and buy a team, uh, I'm all there. I'm all here for you. You can uh, come to me for all your advice about social media and tweets and how to get emotional and, and to piss people off because apparently people are, uh, get really pissed off when you have an opinion. I've been highly critical of, of Claire Williams, in particularly – in the last five years, the downfall of that team since the turbo hybrid era has begun in 2014 mm. has been a shambles. In saying that, I actually think from where the team was two or three years ago to where it is today, she's actually done a good job. Yep. Um, I've made stupid remarks and joking about the uh, the other sibling should have got the job above her, but that's just me being a smart ass and just trying to throw some <laughs> grenades in there. You're, you're not a smart ass, surely. I've never <laughs> ever thought that about you. Well, there's a bit of a story behind that. We won't talk about it because we're not gossip columns or anything like that. And that was just me being a smart ass. But I think I think she's actually done a pretty good job in hindsight of where that team was two or three years ago and they're on track to performance to where it is now. They are getting better. She has implemented a whole lot of systems, you know, from a from a management style to get them better. And we're starting to see some results. Whether that whether whether those results are uh, adequate for what she has done for that organisation, we'll never know, we'll never find out. But on on the surface, from fans looking in, I've, I've got to give her some credit. She's she's doing a good job. And it must be tough for a chick to operate in an environment like this as well. So, kudos yeah. and all credit. I hope you yeah, don't get shafted. I, ho- I hope you don't get shafted. I hope that you remain in a position in this team moving forward for decades to come and carry on what your dad did because it would be real sad for an investment firm to come out and say, Oh yeah, we're going to do the right thing, and then shaft you twelve months later. I don't, I don't like that. I think it's, I think it's bullshit. But I think it probably will happen at some stage. But I hope yeah. for you that you, I hope for you that you remain here for another 10, 15 years. Give it your service, and you deserve everything you got. So yeah, oh, that's good. Uh, look, on. it's exciting. As I said, it's exciting for for the paddock and for fans everywhere. And Williams will remain for a long time to come, which is fantastic. <laughs> Well, Campy, let's talk a little bit off Formula One, but keep the Formula One theme. The Indy 500 was this morning. Uh, did you just change? And- did you just change Takuma Sato's name on our uh, on our notes because it was Yakima <laughs> before? <laughs> yeah, I correct uh, does that sometimes, like but like uh, mate, can I just say Fernando Alonso had an absolutely rubbish time? Not as bad as Marcus Ericsson, but an absolutely rubbish time. Let's talk about Fernando for a bit because he. Uh, he left in a bit of a uh, left Formula One in a bit of a huff, didn't he? He was a bit sick of Honda, uh, I don't blame and 
and yeah, fair enough too. But uh, in that year, he ended up uh, racing in the 2017 Indy 500, uh, 2018 yep. rather, Indy 500, and uh, having a look at <laughs> what happened then, he was so close to the front and he got pipped yeah, the, by Takuma Sato, didn't he? He was, uh, you're talking about 2018. He yep. had a good car in 2018. That was an Andretti-backed motorsport and all the funding came from McLaren. Uh, you know, it's still that Honda engine in it. He was running, I think, in the top five or, or top, or was it top five when his engine blew up, but he was only five seconds off the lead. So we know this guy can drive it. Unfortunately, last year when the McLaren-backed entry rocked up, they were an absolute shambles. They thought they could just buy a steering, re- steering wheel off the shelf. And they spent three days of their testing and qualifying trying to figure out, oh, you know, what steering wheel we're going to use. What a joke. This year, he qualified. That's because you didn't even really need qualifying this year because uh, the grid didn't exceed uh, 26 entries, I think. So he just had a rubbish car. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a reflection of how good this guy is and he's behind an open-wheeling car. I just think that the car he had was crap. It was sad to see him so far down the pack, though, to be honest. He finished a lap down uh, on the leaders. But let's talk about Takuma Sato because what a dude. Like, oh. he, he's an absolute legend and he speaks so well. I love it. I love listening to his interviews. Uh, of course, he raced in Formula 1 from 2002 to 2008. He was part of Jordan, BAR, Super Aguri. Uh, he's done so many different categories. He was born in 1977. The dude is not young. All right, let's just put that out there. He's 43 years old and he's just won his second Indy 500. And we're looking at people like Lando Norris and everyone else down the, you know, the younger end of Formula One. He's been successful in almost everything he's done. Brilliant. It's a bit of a shame we didn't get to uh, uh, the race classification ended under a safety period, but that's, that's all right. Um, I think the guy who behind him, what's his name, should probably would have won it if they had one Scott Dixon, lap, and he's and he's your bro too. He's from New Zealand. Yeah, bro. Well, hey, here you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Look, was, I fell asleep after about half an hour because it was I was on at four o'clock our time, and I was like, "Geez." Yep. Oh, so I watched the replay when I woke up. But it was pretty. But uh, look, it's a good spectacle. There's no fans there, which kind of sucked. But um, anyway, lots of crashes. Great result. Lots of crashes. Yeah, yeah lots, great result for him. As and I predicted last week, again, profit. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> now apparently Indy 500 profit. Uh, but Mate, it's worth mentioning insane, also. Though, oh, it's it, look, Marcus Ericsson, uh, who's had a he's, – He's been having a good uh, two years in Indy 500. I think he's he's probably it's better for him to not be in Formula One and, and sort of down towards the back. But uh, if you don't know, he raced between 2014 and 2018 with Caterham and then Sauber. Um, he put it into the wall. Uh, and can I just say, mate, like it doesn't take much to disturb that oh. car and throw the balance off. You lose it and then bang, wall done. Your race is done, and more often than not, your car's on fire. <laughs> it's just I've never seen oh. so many and- oh, cars out and it's on fire. Mate, the speeds those guys are going, oh, and so close together. Like, you're right. We saw how uneasily Fernando's car got upset just by hitting some concrete that was a different yeah. uh, different texture to the uh, the bitumen of the racetrack, uh, the gutter, how much that unsettled his car and what happened. Mate, when it goes wrong in these sports, it goes wrong and – Seems to happen four or five times a race, and they just don't care. Like, oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's why we go racing. So, and the speeds are astronomical. Like we're talking, you know, 
qualifying was what three twenty two average oh, really? K an hour for pole or whatever it was, and you know they're cruising around these things at three fifteen. It's just mental. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. Uh, the other F one drivers or former. F1 drivers, I should say, who were in the paddock. Uh, we had uh, Rossi, uh, Alexander Rossi, who also binned it. He, yep. had, uh, he actually had uh, contact with Sato, got a penalty, had to drop to the, the back of the grid, uh, and then just uh, he just lost it. He collided uh, into the wall again, funnily enough. Yep. Uh, he was with Marussia for, for only a year. Um, had, uh, had some other options to, to get into Formula 1 earlier than that, just didn't end up working out. But uh, Alex also Rossi was the guy. He should have had uh, Alex Rossi should have had the Haas drive. That was his thing. Yeah, and I think that would have done really well for you know he would have collected some great data. Let's just put it that way, shall we? Because uh, <laughs> he was he was super pissy at the end there, uh, which was great to to see some sass when he was being interviewed well, after talking about the penalty. He was like, "Yeah, I'm going to have to talk to some people about that." I'm like, "Yes, you will," because you're pissed, and I love it. That's fantastic. I like the energy. <laughs> uh, Max Chilton, he was also in there. Max Chilton's like the guy that's done twenty thousand things. I'm pretty sure he was uh, in Top Gear for a bit as well, like randomly racing buses and everything else. Uh, he's done all kinds of racing, but he was in Marussia in 2013 and 2014. Uh, not really the team to really be in to do anything decent with. So it's a shame Fernando Alonso didn't get the Triple Crown. Um, Takuma took it away from him again. Uh, and we know that Renault have said no to him racing next year and the year after. So, look, in saying that, you know, he's 40, <laughs> so he's, he's the same age. If When he comes back, if he was to take the title, he'd be the same age as Takuma. But uh, it was touted as... Motorsports best spectacle? Not going to agree with it. Sorry, guys. It was a bit of fun to watch, but uh, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're right. It sort of got to be boring. How'd Will Power go? I know he's sitting in the top ten in the in the. Uh, he and Fernando were having having a, a bit of a bit of a tussle there in the mid pack around fifteen. If if you weren't watching, um, look, the highlights are probably worth a watch, but maybe don't watch the whole race. Uh, but yeah, you the, can't, sorry, you can't afford it. Yeah, Can't so he me. he and Fernando were between that sort of 12th to 25th tussling around yeah. for a bit. Fernando's name appeared in the 15th position and then it was him. Also, it's just a great name to to have for any kind of <laughs> any kind of driver. Um but uh anyway, he's so he's won he's won that championship three times I think and he's won a couple of uh Indy 500s as well under his belt. So, yeah, he's an Aussie good good form by him. Yeah, good, good form by him. And also, can I just say, it's just nicer to see some older gentlemen driving uh, really, really quickly around the racetrack because I think uh, there's so much pressure put on Formula 1 drivers who are, inverted commas, getting old, like Danny Rick at the ripe old age of 30 and uh, Lewis in his early 30s and Seb in his early uh, 30s. are like, oh, they're all old now. Bug them off. It's like, guys, mate, really? Hey, mate, he's a baby. He's all right. Don't worry about that. And just quickly, before we finish up, mate, MotoGP last night was excellent. We had Remy Gardner in uh, Moto2, finished on the podium. Good result for him. They thought he would have the pace to get uh, get the win, but it didn't, uh, didn't happen. But if you haven't watched the MotoGP race as a fan racing, I highly recommend going watching that. Oh, yeah. Going, boy. Hey, Jack Miller, he had, the, he had the lead going in the last turn, and then some things happened, which was... Amazing! I almost put three hundred bucks on him for the win because he was paying about twenty six bucks. I'm glad I didn't in the end. 
But oh, what a race! What a race it was! It was it was brilliant. We saw red flags. We saw the race start again. And uh, yeah, look, if you're a fan of motorsport, which which we are, you know, we don't talk about it very often, but uh, it's worth a watch. So yeah. Good to spread your wings and look at different things. And look, if you're in Australia and you're suffering under KO, uh, they're yeah. all on there to, to watch, including well, that, V8 supercars as well. That's the, that's the other thing. I live in Victoria. we got absolutely nothing to do at the moment. <laughs> yes. Can't do anything. Yes, it's a good thing to do in lockdown. But, uh, Campy, look, thanks very much, mate. That was that was brilliant. Really enjoyed that. If you really enjoyed that too, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review. If you want to get in touch about anything we're talking about, uh, you'll see all of our social media details in the description below, wherever you're listening. Uh, Campy doesn't have social media, but he is interested in getting the login details for the Oz F1 Instagram account. Uh, Tommy T and I are still considering the request. <laughs> Just want to check out some InstaFit chicks, you know. Just be a teenage <laughs> boy all over again. That's just why uh, you'll be disappointed oh. when you see the feed is only Formula One drivers and Formula One teams, my man. Uh, but look, Mate, Dwayne, thanks very much for your company. Uh, it's been awesome. Uh, hopefully we've answered any questions you might have had about the F1 Concord Agreement. If you, if we haven't, please get in touch. We will respond to you in all of our social media. Mate, it has been a pleasure to talk to you about this. And I'm very, sorry, very sorry there's much. Not enough banter. Sorry there's not enough banter in this podcast. There's a bit information heavy ready for us. But, hey, I've got nothing to do at the moment so can't be calls it this is why we call it but there'll be plenty of banner to come in the next one as we spend next weekend in spa mate we'll see you there beautiful